0: Yo, this episode of Cheat Codes, a sicker cell podcast was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit GBT.com to learn more.
1: Hello, Warriors, and welcome to another episode of Cheat Codes with me, Dr. Z. Me, Dr. C. And actually, we've got another doctor with us today, and I'm super excited about this. We've got a guest co-host, and our guest co-host, Dr. C, is um, a pretty special dude. I'm excited to have Dr. Hines here. So we've got Dr. Patrick Hines, who is a critical care medicine doctor, but actually, he's basically a hematologist. For sure, at least honorary
0: sickle cell doctor.
1: Uh So, Dr. Hines, welcome to our episode, and thank you for co-hosting
0: with us today, guys. It was a pleasure. It's a it's an honor to, to hang out with you guys. Any excuse to spend time with you all, I'm gonna I'm gonna be all over that. All right, but we're gonna make you work today, man.
1: Our warriors have uh they have a lot of needs as far as needing information to get to them in the best way possible. So we're gonna make you work for our warriors today.
0: All right, I, it's a pleasure to do it,
2: warriors. All right, I'm excited to get to it. Well, I'm excited for the next segment. This is always my favorite segment because this is where Amar does most of the work, and uh, that's when I ask Amar uh, what's going on in social media. I don't, I don't check my uh, Twitter as much as Amar, so he he keeps me updated. You know, on these podcasts, I get to hear a nice story about the most important things going on in, in uh, Amar's Snapchats.
1: Well, I haven't devolved into using Snapchat yet. I'm still trying to keep it pretty official over here, so. You know, I think that I'm going to stick with this theme that we're building of pain and sort of these uh, biopsychosocial complexities that come along with sickle cell disease. You know, in this episode, we're going to have a really, really interesting, really sort of accomplished guest, uh, Dr. Patricia Kavanaugh, who is working in emergency medicine right? So we always have this conversation about emergency room physicians uh, not caring about sickle cell disease patients. Uh, Well, on this episode, we're going to introduce you to one that's actually working from the inside to try to change that. So kind of leading up to this episode in my preparation, before we talked to her, I made a tweet and and I also posted on Instagram.
0: No way. (laughs) So, So unlike you, man. So uncharacteristic. Oh
1: boy. So I wanted to gauge my, my sickle cell folks. I basically asked them if there was one thing that you could change about what's happening to you in the emergency room, what would that one thing look like? What would that one thing be? I got to tell you, the amount of engagement I got on that post was, was pretty tremendous. I, uh, I tweeted, sickle cell family, if you could change one thing about the emergency room, what would it be? And this post got almost 16,000 impressions. Yeah, it hit quite a bit of people. And I want to go through some of these responses with you guys and just feel it out and see what you guys think. The first response I got linked me to a guy named James Craig, who is a English professor in Mobile, Alabama. James had posted a video of him in a empty emergency room where he had been waiting for seven hours to be seen by a physician. And that was sort of the kickoff to this thread. And and I immediately reached out to James and we're going to have him on um, the podcast as well, because I I really want to hear his story. But some of the issues that came up besides the wait time, which the wait time is a huge issue, right? We know that sickle cell patients who are in pain, they need hefty doses of opioids fast when they're devolving into a pain crisis. That seemed to be a really common theme that kept coming up. The other thing that people talked about was sort of the demeanor of the staff, particularly the nursing staff in the amount of compassion that patients were sensing from them. I got responses that told me things like some humility from the ER team would be beneficial. I got responses that said things like, I don't like when they withhold medications based on my labs. It's frustrating that I'm in pain and physicians are waiting two hours for my CBC to come back. One person said, I miss being a priority. I didn't have this problem so much when I'm young, but now that I'm an adult, I feel like I'm not a priority anymore. The theme of being treated like a human being and not being treated like an addict came up repeatedly. There was a consistent theme about the judgment in the voices of physicians that were talking to the patients and a almost discouragement from patients voicing what they think is necessary for them. They felt that if they voiced what they think they needed to feel better, they were seen even more so as potentially an addict. And, and having to navigate that, uh, the theme came up was particularly complex for them. One person wrote, I would like for you to just let the emergency room doctors know, we we don't fake pain. It's really bad. We try to breathe through the pain. We try to explain the pain, but it's really hard to do that when you're hurting. And honestly, every subsequent post, there's like a hundred of these, every subsequent post was just more and more heartbreaking. They are important. We have failed them just as a community. Uh, As physicians, I know we all try our best and we all might be thinking, objectively, I'm doing what I think is best for this patient, but it it really appears that the patients aren't perceiving that. So I want to talk to you guys about this. How do we tackle this big of a problem that's happening literally in every emergency room in the country?
0: I think we should just open our eyes to what's happening right now in, in the world. You know, there's no more pertinent example of what happens when you don't listen to a community or you make assumptions about who someone is or what they feel than what's happening right now in terms of the social unrest surrounding the incidents with, with, uh, you know, Mr. Floyd in, in Minneapolis. You know, these patients are coming in and unlike my struggle with a baby with a breathing tube, these patients are able to tell you that I am in pain. And for, for us as physicians to assume that, you know, because of our own unconscious bias or, or, or whatever the reason we don't uh, believe what the patients are telling us and act on that, we are not first doing no harm we are allowing harm to ensue. I've had many a conversation with trainees on rounds who may not necessarily know that I have a a deep interest in sickle cell disease when we're rounding in the ICU and we have a patient with sickle cell disease and it may come up, you know, well, you know, this patient says they're in pain, but you know, who knows? And then we end up at that bedside for about a half an hour, 45 minutes, uh, getting the, the, the Dr. Hines lecture on painted so, <laughs> Like when those police tried to arrest the FBI agent. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah,
1: that's a, that's a really good video, too. Um, no, I mean, and Dr. Hines, man, I I love that, right? Because that's what we need. We need, you know, like, I think that's a key point is that it doesn't have to be a knee in the neck of somebody for it to be mistreatment, right? Like, we should be able to call it out when we see it and when it happens, and it happens all the time.
0: And we shouldn't need video evidence of it to believe that it's real, right? If they're exactly. telling us that it's real, we shouldn't need, you know, and I'm a biomarker guy, right? I love, I eat, drink and sleep biomarkers, but we shouldn't need a biomarker to validate what this patient is telling us. Tell our warriors what a biomarker is. So a biomarker is something that we can measure either in the blood as a lab, it can be an image that we can capture with an ultrasound, but it's, it's something that we can measure that gives us an indication of what's happening in the body. And as a specific example, I have an interest in red blood cells as biomarkers and, and measuring the health of red blood cells as an indication of how someone is doing. And there are a lot of things that that I've learned over the decades in, in, in researching that, that helped me understand the relationship between the health of one's red blood cells and the health of the individual. But I also understand that that doesn't tell me everything I need to know. And ultimately, if I have a person in front of me who is able to give me feedback on how they're feeling, then it's my responsibility as the physician in charge of that patient's care to figure it out.
1: That's great insight. Thank you. I think there's a couple
2: overlapping things here too. I mean, I think there's a, a specifically sickle cell story. I think there there's things we can do, like put in pathways to make sure people get pain medicines as soon as they possibly can. We can give lectures to ER doctors so they know more about Sickle cell. We can do things like Stephanie Worth is doing at SCDA, Michigan, where patients come in with a card that says, "You know, this is how I need to be treated." So I, I think there's a lot of that, but I think just as a, as a world, we need to go back to kindergarten a little bit, and and as you know, medical professionals, we need to think about, you know, why we're here, and that's to help people, and I think you know, to do that, you have to care about people, and you have to listen to them, and you have to empathize. And there are people who fake things that come into the medical system sometimes. But I would say the vast majority of times when I hear people say, oh, this patient is faking, it's because they were too dumb to figure out what was going on with the patient and it comes back and bites them. Because most patients, you know, why would you come to the hospital faking? Like, what do you get out of that? You're there because you have a problem and you need help. When you jump to that, oh, this isn't real. Almost all the time, you're wrong. And, and I think, you know, that message needs to get out. We need to educate our trainees better. We need to educate our doctors better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one, one thing that always occurs to me is, is that I was literally just talking to Patrick about this. Pain does not happen on a nine to five schedule, right? We understand that it's not ideal that patients are coming to the emergency room with pain after hours when their hematologist can't see them. We get that that's not ideal, but I think my plea to like the emergency room physicians is our patients are accessing emergency rooms for reasons that are, are are vast. These are patients that may not have a sickle cell provider. These are patients that have been largely ignored by the sort of medical complex and have been sort of put in a situation where they're just trying to find relief wherever they can. So as an ER physician, you might be that patient's first interaction with the medical system, often you are, until you see the hematologist 12 hours
0: later. And Amar, if I can say one other quick thing. Please. Of the patients that make it to see you, there's been studies such as the, the Pisces study that, that, that Wally Smith at, at VCU conducted, showing that about a third of the patients with biologically meaningful pain episodes actually come in to the emergency room in the first place. So you're seeing the the tip of the spear. Most patients who have this significant pain because of some of these barriers that they experience when they go to the emergency room and and they try to access the healthcare system, choose to suffer with that pain at home and not come to see you. So the last thing you want to be is a part of that problem that reinforces the disincentive for that patient to access the care that they need, that the pain, I'd rather suffer at home with the pain than deal with the indignity of coming to the, the hospital to get help where people don't believe me.
1: For sure. No, that, thank, you for, thank you for putting that in there. I, uh, you know, I recognize we're running out of time on this segment, so I'm just going to end with the words of Dr. Lakia Bailey, who's a sickle cell warrior and a, a molecular hematologist. And she says, don't make patients decide between dignity or death. And, um, you know, there's not much more that needs to be said about, about sickle cell patients being treated in the emergency room. I hope that uh, you guys found this segment interesting. And coming up next, we have Dr. Mike with uh, a word of the day.
2: All right, word of the day, Dr. Z. This one usually starts with uh, you giving me a riddle.
1: Dr. Callahan, today's word is, it's particularly special. It is the heart and soul of sickle cell disease um, as far as what our patients deal with day to day, constantly. It is the reason for them to mostly seek care. And it is the reason that they are... Struggling with stereotypes and bias, because the word of the day is the reason why our sickle cell patients require high doses, appropriately, of opioid medications in contexts that um, sometimes make it challenging for them to to get the care that they deserve. What's our word of the day, Doctor Canhan? Have you guessed it?
2: You know what he's talking about, Doctor Hines. Not sure. Is it (laughs) seriously? Come on, guys. All right. I think we got it.
1: It's pain. Yeah, it's absolutely it's pain. So Dr. Callahan, what is pain? Pain is defined as
2: a distressing feeling often caused by intense or damaging stimuli. Or some people will say it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential damage or described in terms of such damage. So pain is a symptom, usually, of something else going on, of an underlying condition. And it is a signal from our body that something bad is going on. And so, you know, we hate pain, but pain is really important. If you don't have pain, um, there's a disease called Hansen's disease, or we used to call it leprosy, um, where people get a, a bacteria and it damages their nerves and their nerves don't send pain signals. And you would think that's great. You can't get any pain. But what happens is then you don't, uh, you don't get those signals that your tissues being damaged or that you're having a problem, and you, you cause more damage to those tissues. So you can imagine if you didn't feel pain and you put your hand on a hot stove, you wouldn't pull it back. You would just leave it there, and it would burn up. So pain is important. It's there for a reason. It's usually telling us something. But it's also terrible. Um, and sometimes we have pain that we can't get rid of this, the source. We can't take our hand off of that hot plate. But it's still important to know that it's there. And pain gets really complex because that pain is, is a sort of simple kind of pain. You have what we would call a noxious stimulus or a, something that you your body should avoid. But pain becomes a complex syndrome, actually, that involves not just the actual stimulus and the signaling of your neurons, but also all of the things that go along with that, the, the sick feeling, the anxiety, it can lead to depression because you can't get rid of that. And part of that is that pain signaling takes over everything. And that's what it's supposed to do. If you have your hand on a burner, that should be the most important thing to you at this point. So it can hijack your brain and say, you know, this is the only thing you can think about. But if you have a chronic pain condition, that also is true. And you, you have a hard time thinking about anything else. And then that can cause problems with your relationships, with you know your, your happiness, with your ability to do things at work or at school. Um, so chronic pain can really affect your life in so many different ways. And especially when you have a situation where you feel like you can't control the pain, it can cause anxiety. And in sickle cell, we have so many different kinds of pain. We talk a lot about vaso-occlusive crisis and pain from that, and that is your body being damaged by the blood vessels being blocked, and the tissue's not getting oxygen, and it's dying. And so your, your nerves are saying, oh, no, we got tissue dying here. There's pain, and you're, you can't respond to it because how do you make how do you make the blood vessels unblock? And that, that causes acute pain in episodes. So we call them vaso crisis or vaso episode. But there's other kinds of pain in sickle cell too. I mean, you can have pain the same way anybody else would. So if you put your hand on a hot stove, you'll get pain. But you can also have chronic forms of pain, and that could be pain from degeneration of your spine bones, or you get some arthritis and you have chronic back pain.
1: Our warriors often have, yeah, exactly. Our warriors often have avascular necrosis.
2: Yep. Avascular necrosis can cause serious chronic pain. And you can also have pain from having pain. So our friend, Dr. Glaros is doing a fantastic study. Um, And he's looking at a type of pain called neuropathic pain. So when you have repeated pain, the nerves are almost like, like your muscles. When you keep using your muscles, they get bigger, you get more muscles. When you keep stimulating the nerves like that, you get more nerve endings. And then you become actually more sensitive to the pain. So you can get something called allodynia, where something that normally wouldn't cause pain causes you pain. Um, and, and you can have a sense of pain all the time. And often this is a little different kind of pain. It might feel electric or hot, and it's usually chronic and it doesn't come and go the way a vaso crisis does. And for most pain, medications can help. You can have medications that can help by preventing the pain like hydroxyurea or anti-inflammatory medicines can, can decrease the inflammation. And sometimes that stops the thing that's causing your pain and makes it a little better. Or you can have medicines that stop some of the pain signaling in the nerves. They don't stop the thing that's causing the pain, but they stop some of the pain signaling. So they kind of mask it or take the edge off. And those are things like opioid medicines that we use a lot, like morphine. And those can help. um, But in some kinds of pain, they don't help that much. Like in the nerve type of pain, they don't help that much. And we sometimes use other medicines in, in those situations. Dr. Glaros is testing out something I think is really cool, capsaicin. That's sort of the active ingredient in um,
1: peppers, red peppers. Peppers, yeah. Yeah.
2: But uh, there are other medicines like Neurontin is, is a, a common one that's used that can help with that kind of, of nerve pain.
1: Let me back up to uh, acute pain really quickly. Our warriors are very much used to uh, defining their pain by saying, my pain is a 10. Are there better ways to measure pain? How do we measure pain? Can we measure pain? And, and, and maybe you and Dr. Hines can kick this one back and forth a little bit.
2: Yeah, that's quite an easy question, so I'll leave it to Dr. Hines. Yeah, give (laughs) Give me the easy ones, man.
0: But but I I think a lot about pain in the context of kids we take care of in the ICU. And and many of these kids that we take care of are too young to verbalize to us or tell us uh, how much pain they're in. So we have to measure their pain based off of nonverbal signals. Vital sign changes, facial expressions, the way that they respond to touch, and so we give them a score as well. But it's the kind of score that's based off of information that the patient can't tell us. We have to sort of extract that data and that information from the patient and assess the level of pain that they're in. But that's a tough thing, right? You know, it's it's always tough to feel like you can assume what someone else is experiencing. And you've got to, you know, sort of have some humility and understand that your subjective assessment of what someone is experiencing may or may not be exactly right. I think that's so important because sometimes people will say that pain is all
2: in your head. Well, all of pain is all in your head. Your nerves are sending signals, but it's your it's your brain that senses them and, and processes it. And there aren't really good objective measures. I mean, when you're in a situation like Dr. Hines is, and you have a baby and you want to try to keep the baby comfortable, but you can't talk to him, you can't see what they're sensing, you have to do what you have to do. But there aren't really good objective ways to say when someone's having pain because it, it is in their head. A lot of times, especially our warriors who deal with this all the time, they may become stoic and they may process pain by being quiet. They may not... Uh, you know express a lot of the outward signs and symptoms of pain they may try to relax and that may lower their heart rate and so some sometimes those objective measures don't give you a good story about what's going on because pain is a subjective thing. Like Dr. Hines said, you know, you can't really tell from the outside, you know, your subjective measurement of what somebody else is feeling is not always good. And, you know, if you talk to my wife, she'll tell you that I'm not very good at picking up how other people are feeling sometimes. <laughs> so, um, so I, I think it's really important to, to understand that, but I, I think we can also work on things that, you know, try to measure this better try to quantify things, try to understand what's causing that underlying pain. Because I think, you know. again, pain is a a symptom and it's trying to tell us something. It's telling us that something bad is going on in the body. And sometimes we can't fix those things, but I I think we're starting to develop tools where we can. Can we stop that vaso-occlusion? Can we do things that can help that avascular necrosis of the hip? Can we do things that help that back pain? And some of those things might not be right away, But if we have the right tools to figure out what's going on, then we can maybe address some of those things.
1: Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys um, sort of breaking that down for us. Um, It's obviously a very complicated topic, but I, I always appreciate learning from you both.
2: Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community.
1: Dr. C and Dr. Hines. We are going to head to our next segment, which is our interview with Dr. Trish Kavanaugh. All right, Warriors, we have a very, very special segment for you today. We are so lucky to have Dr. Patricia Kavanaugh, who is just a a champion for all of you warriors out there that that we really wanted to highlight for you we really wanted to bring um to the forefront a little bit the efforts that she's undertaken and you know i'm going to tell you something about her and you're going to say you know what i don't believe you i'm going to tell you that she's an emergency room doctor and the warriors out there might be like no there's emergency room doctors don't like sickle cell disease and man when i look at my colleagues uh Accomplishments here and her passion for sickle cell disease. It is just amazing. So I want to thank you, Dr. Kavanaugh, for taking time out of your day to be with us today.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
1: We're so excited to have you today.
2: We get a lot of feedback about the emergency room, and unfortunately, not everybody's focusing on how best to treat sickle cell in the emergency room like you are. So we're hoping we can learn some things today to improve our practice all around.
3: Sounds like a plan. I want to sort
1: of get into the sort of the elephant in the room. How does an emergency room physician decide that this is going to be it for me? This is what I am passionate about. This is what I want to do. What is the story?
3: All right, the story. So I did my training at Boston Medical Center, which is the largest safety net institution north of New York City. And so we are a center that takes care of both children and adults with sickle cell disease. And so as I was finishing a pediatrics residency, I'd seen a lot of patients with sickle cell disease, both at mainly at Boston Medical Center. And it was one of those diseases that no one else seemed to be really interested in. And as I embarked on my research career, I, I did a Google search and said, sickle cell disease, children. And less than 3,000 articles came up. And I said, boy, there's a lot of room here for me. And so one of the first things I did, I got great advice, and I did interviews and focus groups with parents and adolescents with sickle cell disease. And what I learned was their biggest concern was the care they received in the emergency department. They love their hematologist. They love their primary care. But the ER really gave them a lot of headaches. It was a big challenge. One adolescent, I think, put it the best, remarking on the variation of care. He told me, one time I go into the ER, everyone seems to know what to do. They get me into a bed, put in an IV, give me treatment, uh, and everything is smooth as silk. Other times I come in, it's like they would never met me before. And I was born here. I've been coming to this institution for 17 years. And that quote sticks with me. Because when he comes in, sometimes it was as if they never had met him, never took care of a patient with sickle cell disease, was questioning what even to start with, and was calling hematology to get advice. And it's that variation that really caught my attention. And so when I presented the results to my department chair and publicly at a meeting in the Department of Pediatrics, he said, great, you're an ER doc. You work there. Go fix it. (laughs) And honestly, those words uh, started everything.
2: Did you realize then that was a whole career's worth of work?
3: Uh, It was daunting because I knew that that might be the most challenging place. At the same time, though, I did have a moment of recognition after I was sort of taken aback as I was leaning towards a different way. But it made a whole lot of sense when I started Organizing it, right? So I knew that in the ER, who are the right people to have there? It's not just the doctors, it's really the nurses who drive all care in the emergency department. And then our good friends, the pharmacists, right? In the ER, we, as BMC is a large ER, so we have pharmacists embedded there. And so we worked with them as well as hematology, social work on both sides hemat- hematology and ER, right? Bringing everyone together in the same room was powerful and someone who works in the ER was able to bridge the gap between what it's like on the inpatient setting where hematologists were so frustrated, just take care of the patient. And I understand that there's a lot of stuff that happens in the ER that you need to address as well. So how do you really bring these two groups together to work together to improve care? So no, I did not know it was gonna be a career at the very beginning, but after a couple of months of meeting with these, this incredible group, it, it started to feel like something could really come of it.
1: That's just such an amazing story. And honestly, I'm, ha- I'm having difficulty just like not smiling, just listening to this story, because, you know, we, we talked to this comedian with sickle cell disease a few episodes ago who was saying that sickle cell disease is a back of the bus disease. And, and it's not just that for the patients. It's, it's also for the physicians that care about sickle cell disease. And it's for the advocates. It's for everybody that's interested in sickle cell disease. It's a back of the bus disease. And, and even when you try to reach out to administrators and department chairs and and things like that, you you realize that this isn't something that people want to really focus on. So it's amazing to me that you were able to not only accomplish so much locally, but also drive up so much interest nationally. It's truly remarkable. Um, and, And the amount of fight that that must have taken, the amount of frustrations that you must have had to go through to accomplish what you have, I, I can't even imagine. I, I get frustrated just in my own institution, let alone working with everyone all over the country.
3: Why I started working nationally was because it was the recognition that what I was able to accomplish in my institution where we implemented a protocol that every child and young adult who walked in was roomed immediately we use intranasal fentanyl for younger kids, and it works really well. We use it for setting long bone fractures, and it was the pharmacist who said, why don't we use it for sickle cell disease? <laughs> Great question. Why, why don't we? So we got approval from the right administrators at our hospital, and we started the protocol with hematology, sending out letters and promoting it in clinics so the patients didn't feel like they were being, you know, guinea pigs. But we did all this amazing work. And not only did we develop a protocol that every child would follow, right? Like this is the care they would receive, the blessing from hematology, all the attendings in the ER and the nurses understood what the protocol was and why. It took a lot, as you alluded to, right? Because a protocol doesn't do anything unless people understand why you're doing it. And so a lot of myths had to be addressed. Number one, we are not creating drug addicts. We are taking care of severe pain that cannot be managed with outpatient medications. Number two, sleep does not mean that they're pain-free. A lot of times in the ER, you would give them some medication. And a side effect of medication, morphine or hydromorphone, is drowsiness. That does not equate to comfort. And so that was a big thing to get through, like wake the patient up. If they you know give them a dose, they fall asleep. They probably haven't slept in hours, sometimes days, and so they're going to between the medication and the pain that's kept them up and really so tense for so long. As soon as you just take a tiny bit of the edge off, it still might be a 10 out of 10, but just a tiny bit of relief sometimes can induce drowsiness. It does not mean. That they're comfortable and you need to continue and to me it's just the last one was the hardest those who are seen most frequently in the er often have the most severe disease or have very significant psychiatric histories and they're the ones that we need to pay the most attention to the ones with most severe disease they may come in often because their blood vessels are being shredded right it's that constant hum of sickle cells swirling around your body, as as Wally Smith in Virginia says. And that constant hum is causing damage every second of every day of their entire life. As soon as, you know, when they're babies, when they go from hemoglobin F to hemoglobin S, the hum begins. And then patients who really have significant psychosocial needs and psychiatric needs, they sometimes can't tell us when they're really in trouble. It's almost like (laughs) little boy who cried wolf. You have to take care of them. Because they often cannot tell you the difference when they're really having psychiatric issues versus when they're having severe disease. And you have to trust them. Talk to their hematologist or the person who knows them best and figure it out. Ignoring them, putting them in the waiting room is just not sufficient. So I did all this great work, all this education, right? And I submitted a paper. There's
2: so many important things in there. I, I just wanted to take a quick step back for our warriors.
3: Absolutely. Who
2: maybe aren't familiar. They don't come to your ER. Um, or some of the ERs that are doing this now intranasal fentanyl um, is a a potent um, narcotic that's given by a nose spray so you don't have to wait until the patient has an IV started to give medications you can give it right away and I I think that's so important because a a lot of pain um, is exacerbated by anxiety about pain and you get anxious because you don't trust that the provider is going to do the things that you need them to do. Maybe feel like you're being judged or somebody might think you're a a drug addict and they're going to withhold the care that you need because of that. And that makes you anxious. So I And pain makes you
3: anxious, right? Pain itself makes you anxious.
2: (laughs) And so so getting in and having somebody say, I do care about you. I do trust what you're saying is true. I'm going to make your, take the edge off of that right now. Mm -hmm. I think it, it, it doesn't just alleviate the pain it forms a bond that we're on the same team to to stop that pain and and that we trust you and take some of that anxiety away too so i think it's such a great project
1: it's so true everything you hit on is it's just striking such a chord with me because this is what gives sickle cell doctors sleepless nights right is like when is my patient going to have a bad encounter with a nurse on the floor or someone in the ER or something like this. And then you know that that just adds to the anxiety of even the next pain episode, right? So we, we hear that narrative of death over dignity come up over and over again, right? Where people are like, I just don't wanna be treated poorly. I'd rather suffer at home. So the, the refreshing nature of the education that you're providing is just exactly what this group of individuals needs to feel like they are important, to confirm that they are important to us. So I wanna, you know, I don't, I wanna give you a chance to talk a, a little bit about EDSC-3, but I want you first to tell us what EDSC-3 is.
3: So it's an abbreviation for the Emergency Department Sickle Cell Care Coalition. So EDSC-3 is made up of uh, several partners um, that involve the emergency department, Hematology, pediatrics, because a lot of us in pediatrics know a lot about sickle cell disease, and then several key federal partners, National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and then the Joint Commission, and finally, community based organizations such as the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. And most importantly, we have patients. They may wear a couple of hats, but we actually have patients on this coalition because the patient voice. This is this is what we're doing this for. And so they influence everything we do. We founded it. I was a co-founder in 2015, and I actually did it at the behest of a patient. And I was really frustrated. I had just published this great paper documenting the results. I'd shared my protocol using intranasal fentanyl as far and wide as I could, presented at research meetings. If someone said sickle cell, I was like, oh, what is your ER doing? But still, it was just word of mouth, right? It was going to take a decade to get it out there. And so I was a little bit depressed, right? You publish something and it takes forever to get anywhere. And so we went to a meeting and they allowed me to have a little breakout session. Uh, it was a, a sickle cell meeting in Florida. And someone came running up to this stage and she's now one of my close friends, Paula Tanabi. who's a nurse has done a lot of research in sickle cell disease. And she's like, what are you doing? You know, We we need to collaborate because she's really involved with the Emergency Nurses Association of America.
1: And she's at Duke, right?
3: She's at Duke, yes. And so she's been doing this work for a long time. So her entire research career. And it really just blossomed. And the the third person, so I I met with Paula that day and she said, she went to this meeting, the American uh, College of Emergency Physicians, And they tried to talk about sickle cell disease and really no one showed up except a key leader, uh, Sandy Schneider, who is one of the leaders of ASAP. And she said, we really had to get Sandy on board. So we sat down and really started talking about what could we do. And so out of this this conversation, we talked to Sandy, we invited a few friends, we met in Baltimore and Sandy Schneider of ASAP invited a board member because he was at University of Maryland. And that one day where we met for three hours at University of Maryland, this is where this organization was born and really started to grow. And so we all used our connections, right? So I call us the sickle cell crazies. We all know each other pretty well. And so we we decided who else do we need to be there? What key federal partners? We decided it would be an umbrella organization. So it wouldn't just be individuals. Each individual will have would be representing another organization so that if we make a decision to disseminate something, their job was to go back to that organization, like Emergency Nurses Association, American Society of Hematology, and promote what we're doing and disseminate it. It's been incredible. So, you know, the first year, there wasn't a lot, but the fact that the American College of Emergency Physicians decided to actually give us support, like administrative support so that we could do this. That backing has really, with the help of Sandy Schneider and John Mark Hershon, who is the board member, actually is the chair of the board at the American College of Mercy Physicians, their support has been invaluable in getting this little organization really into a much more prominent role.
1: It's amazing how those types of chance, chance things can lead to such big movements, such big changes. That's a very inspiring story. I I was reading a little bit about sort of the initiatives that you have spearheaded under this moniker of EDSC-3, but I want to hear about some of them from you. Tell us a little bit about um, the community advocacy outreach initiatives that you have worked on. And I want you to start by telling us about the one you're most proud of.
3: So the one I'm most proud of is actually we've held summits, sickle cell summits about emergency department care. We've held two. Uh, 2018 and 2019, and for obvious reasons, 2020, has been put on hold, at least in person. These summits have been incredibly powerful. They were held in Washington, D.C., and it brought together, so we are an organization of 15 organizations, but at these summits, we invited even more people. The American Hospital Association, we invited more federal partners because we were in Washington, D.C., and more of them could come, and the goal of the summits were pretty simple. Number one, what can your organization do to improve care for sickle cell disease, especially in the emergency department? And number two, the second part of the day. So we would talk, we would just break up into tables, into groups. They were all, you know, uh, arranged so that they met. And then the second part of the day was how can organizations join forces and work together? So sickle cell disease is so siloed. Right? So, so much is being done either in hematology, which is where the bulk of it has been done previously. You know, the pediatricians would do some as well, but it was never everyone coming to the same room in this kind of way to say, really, the ER is the biggest concern. How can we work and join forces to improve ER care in particular? And honestly, those days were incredibly powerful and so much has come out of them.
1: That's truly amazing. And the fact that you're able to bring all the players into the room and have these discussions, is just, it's wonderful. What What do you perceive as the biggest challenges that are affecting our patients in the emergency room setting right now? What are the top three priorities of EDSC3 and what you wanna tackle?
3: Number one is education. Our providers are just not taught enough who work in the emergency department they're not taught enough about sickle cell disease. So the ERs nationally are not only staffed by physicians, they're also staffed by advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, and sickle cell disease in most curricula really get maybe an hour, couple hours in your education. And there, it is very possible that you only get it in your preclinical years. A lot of institutions, you don't see that many individuals living with sickle cell disease. You can go through your entire training, what we call residency for physicians, and not see a patient with sickle cell disease. So, education is one of the biggest barriers because it is powerful. When you start telling people what it is and have them understand that, it's incredible. And so, one of the key things we're doing is partnering with the American Society of Hematology and the American College of Emergency Physicians and the Emergency Nurses Association to create an online tool. That will become an app that will actually have protocols in there of how to take care of patients with sickle cell disease. We'll start with pain because that's the most common reason people come in. And that's the one that's most fraught given the opioid epidemic of treat them aggressively, repeatedly, and really uh, follow protocols that they exist. Talk to your outpatient providers, you know, hematologists, whatever. The second thing I would say is really working with patients. They don't trust us. There is a, a big gap between the ER and patients. And so a lot of times patients sit at home, especially adults, they sit at home and wait too long, right? And so when they're coming in, they're in extremis, right? We talk about anxiety due to pain. When you get to that point, when you've waited too long, I don't know if anyone out there has had that experience, your sense of fight or flight is sky high. And so it's really hard to engage, right? And so we need to really work on having patients come in sooner, but really have a care team there to receive them, right? We we work in the ER, right? We all have thick skins. Um, we're used to people not having a good day when they show up. And so with sickle cell disease, we really have to ask patients to come in a little bit sooner because we can do much more for them and have a care team ready for them when they arrive. And with that, I think we have to really check our biases, which some people would say could fall under education, but I, I, I think it's a bigger conversation.
2: Absolutely agreed. That's a really challenging conversation too. I think with, with a lot of doctors, it's uh, nobody wants to admit that they, they might not see things completely objectively or that they might be part of the problem.
3: Right. And I think when you have someone who is, you know, have pigment in their skin, right? So most with sickle cell disease are of African descent or Hispanic and they come in waxing poetic about their sickle cell disease and what works best for them. They are not being a quote unquote demanding patient. They are certainly not drug seeking. They are trying to fill a gap that they know that the providers most likely have no idea what sickle cell disease really is and they're trying to help. So we need to check that bias because If someone with lighter pigment comes in and starts educating you on a rare disease, the experience is a little different. And so we have to do better um, in this country and really explore The biases we have. I know people talk about implicit. I've heard a talk recently. Why don't we just strike the word implicit and just call it our biases and just recognize them?
1: Absolutely fair. You know, it's so interesting because in clinic, I've started taking this approach with my adolescents that you need to learn everything you can about sickle cell disease because there's a good chance you're going to know more about sickle cell disease than the physician who's taking care of you at some point and that's how we're approaching education now is it's a tool it's a weapon against bias
3: and i think what we have to do is our providers we need to really have them check our bias but with our patients just give us like a a chance right maybe not i know like in the past for many they've had horrible experiences but don't maybe maybe just peek over that shield just a tiny bit because you will be surprised. And I'm hoping in the very near future, more often than not, just look for that glimmer that maybe somebody on the other side actually knows. Because if you never lower that shield, you don't ever give the providers that chance. And so it it needs to be a two-way street. And I realize the providers have a lot, but if we can get our patients to recognize that there are some of us really out there traveling the country before COVID, going to any talk she was invited to, to talk about this, but we need our our patients to really help us too. And maybe just give us a tiny, tiny chance every once in a while. Their bias is real and I completely understand, but sometimes it can be challenging when providers are trying to help.
2: Are there resources that we could point our ER physicians to, or that our patients could access and maybe even point ER physicians to that you guys have?
3: Yeah, so I can certainly send you guys, I don't know if you have a website that people can go to. We do have a website. So if you just Google EDSC3, you will come to a webpage and there's a resources link and it's full of things, including materials and in COVID. We've been heavily involved with ASH and with SEDAA in informing what should happen in the emergency department. Uh, but there are other things in terms of protocols. We've been invited to give talks that have been recorded, and I'm happy to share those links as well. Please, um,
2: absolutely. And we can share a link on the show notes.
3: Um, absolutely. So I'll, send, I'll be sure to send you those so that you have it on the notes. But we have done talks nationally that have been recorded that talk about some of the protocols that I've mentioned as well as the other work that we've done.
1: Wonderful. There may be people out there, me being one of them, who may be saying, wow, this is really cool stuff. How do I get involved? How do I help? How can I be of assistance to you? What would you tell people like that?
3: Number one, I'm always happy to talk with people. The one thing that has happened on a number of occasions you know, is that a patient or a provider, you know, the patients may talk to their provider and say, hey, you know, our ER care is not the best, you know, but I do know people are trying to, to help. So we have mentored various members of our organization, including myself, have mentored other institutions, shared protocols. How do you address some of the barriers that uh, people may have? Because having been through this a number of times, you know, mentoring each other, peer-to-peer mentoring from one ER doc to another really is a powerful thing because we understand what other demands are, and what some of the barriers might be, and how to overcome them. But reaching out is always a great thing. We're always re- here to help. Reaching out, you know, if you're working with a, a state chapter of SEDAA or a community-based organization, let us know if you want someone to zoom into a call, into a meeting. We're happy to do that. We've done a lot of education with ASEP state board chapters, and so if there's other groups that you would like us because it's not just me there's a whole group of us and many of us give presentations so one of us would be happy to come and share hear your experiences and offer advice
1: i mean this has been such a enlightening conversation and i'm um, i'm just so happy now that i we've made an acquaintance and we can stay connected and you know join forces i'm proud that i have colleagues in this space that are doing such important work um, like you are. Thank you so much for staying dedicated to this.
3: You're very welcome. This is it for me, my career.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else that you want to tell us that we haven't hit on for the patients who may be listening?
3: No, I think the final message I would say is that we are working really hard to change the care that you're getting in the ER. And we are going to continue to work with all these wonderful organizations who are stepping up in a huge way. You know, I think if we can just continue to work together, that's the most important thing we can do.
1: Absolutely. Well, there you are, Warriors. You've heard it straight from somebody who is on the front lines and is truly dedicated to the care you're receiving in the ER, to the encounter you're having in the ER. Thank you once again for joining us, Dr. Kavanaugh.
3: You're very welcome.
2: Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. Visit gbt.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell disease.
1: All right, Warriors, we're back. And we really hope that you've enjoyed this episode so far. I, uh, I, I think that this has been a very valuable episode for me because I think that sometimes it's important to study your own implicit biases, find your blind spots. And, and even for someone who's embedded in sickle cell care, I definitely have my own blind spots that I'm aware of and I try to work on too. So episodes like this remind me of those sort of implicit biases that I may have too. So I hope that it's doing the same for the other providers who are listening. But that being said, the the next segment that uh, we're going to go over is perfect because Dr. Hines and Dr. Callahan are sort of the brain behind the paper that, you know, soon to be paper, I should say, that we're going to be discussing today.
2: And Dr. Z. Don't, don't be too humble here, Dr. Z. We're a
1: part of it. I, had a, I had a small portion. I had a, I had a small part to play here. But, but really, this is their baby. And I, uh, you know, this was the reason, really, that we, we brought Dr. Hines on to be a co-host so that he could really chime in during the segment. And, um, you know, the importance of the study that was done here is going to become really apparent to you guys. These guys are sort of changing the way that we think about VOCs. They're changing the way we think about pain. I really hope that uh, you guys get some benefit from this, and I really hope that this changes the way sickle cell doctors start to think. So, without delaying this too much, Doctor C, why don't you uh, why don't you dive into ellipsis?
2: Yeah. So, you know, on this segment, we usually talk about a study, and often we've talked about studies that are published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we've done a couple case reports and review articles. But today, I, I think this is a, a special one because I am biased. Not you know, implicit bias. This is explicit bias. I'm totally biased in favor of this study because it's our study, Dr. Hines, Dr. Zadie, myself, and really a big group of investigators throughout the country and and here at Children's Hospital, Janelle White here at Children's and some folks from Pfizer who were really instrumental in getting this off the ground and working on this study and group from Boston Children's Hospital. And this study is called Ellipsis. And uh, we have spent Thousands of hours on this study. It's a longitudinal study of electronic patient-reported outcomes, actigraphy, and biomarkers in sickle cell disease. And we're giving you guys a sneak preview here because this isn't published yet. It's uh, under review um, at a journal, and, and hopefully they'll accept it. Please, please accept it.
1: So wait, really quickly, that the please, please accept it part. I want you to tell the warriors actually what has happened here. This please, please accept it. You have taken. A project that you did, this project is now typed up, it's written up, and it's sent to who?
2: To an important journal in our field. And they send it to? And then they send it out for what's called peer review. What does that mean? And so peer review is the editor of the journal, first looks at the paper, and sometimes they say, oh, this is garbage. No, thank you. Or they say, it doesn't really fit with what we publish. You should publish it somewhere else. But if they like it and they think it's got potential for the journal then they'll send it to experts in the field. In this case, that's probably a bunch of people who do sickle cell research, who have a lot of experience in this, who know a lot about sickle cell, who know a lot about research. Maybe in this case, because this is a biomarker study, they might send people who do biomarkers or sometimes statisticians to make sure you've done everything right. And those people will go through the paper and critique it. And they might say, this is horrible. You can't publish this. Uh, The way they did this is flawed. Or they might say, you know, this is pretty good, but it would be better if you could look at things this way or could you show the data a little differently or could you change the way this is, this is written because it's hard to understand or it's maybe misleading. So they really try to improve what you've done, critique it and improve it and make sure it's suitable for publication and, and sort of vet that the uh, results are true.
1: Well, thanks for that sidebar. I just thought it was really important for the Warriors to know that science is not easy. It's rigorous a rigorous process, yeah. And, and yeah. It's, a,
2: it's a long process. So we submitted it to this journal, and, and the reviewers came back and, and gave it a pretty favorable review. They said there's some things that they would like us to change. So we're in the middle of working on that, and we'll send it back in. But this study was really, you know, when you, when you make a study, you want to answer a question. And I, I think our question was, can we identify things that change in pain episodes? So when a person's at their baseline, when they're not in pain, this value is one thing, but then when they're in pain, it changes to another thing. So these could be used as markers for pain. We could say, if you're, you know, whatever is this level, then you're in pain, or if it changes this much, then you're in pain. And that can help you in, in a couple of ways. One, ideally, you might be able to pick up something that happens even before the pain. And so you might be able to jump in before the pain happens and prevent it. A second thing you might be able to do is identify what is causing the pain based on these markers. So if you see something that changes during the pain, like inflammation, then maybe inflammation is what's leading to the pain and you need to target it. And it can also help you test, for instance, new drugs. So if you know that this variable goes up when you're in pain, then you can give a new drug. And if that variable doesn't go up, then maybe that's a sign that the drug's working and it's helping with the pain. You can also maybe prognosticate people with these kinds of markers that have more pain down the road and, and we need to change their disease management. So we were really looking at a lot of things to see if we could find markers to use for those kind of things. Did I get that okay, Dr. Hines? You got it
0: perfect. One, one, one of the things that I really like about it, though, Dr. C, is that we define pain based on the patient's experience. Right. So it's not Dr. C or Dr. Z saying, okay, this patient's in pain. All right. We're gonna that's how we're gonna define it. The individual defines whether they're in pain or not, how much pain they're in, and whether they consider that pain meeting the level of a vaso occlusive event.
2: And that that's a really important point. I think, you know, some studies would say it's pain if the patient came to the hospital for pain. But we know patients have a lot of pain at home. And so we developed a tool called an electronic patient-reported outcome diary, and we used some questionnaires that had been tested out before and uh, worked well. That patients filled out every day. So really, thank all the participants in this study. It was a lot of work for them to be on this study, but hopefully, it provides information that helps a lot of other people. So. They would fill out this questionnaire every day and tell us how much pain they were in if they were fatigued Um, they would answer a whole bunch of questions and then they could tell us if they were having a pain crisis today or not and if they told us they were having a pain crisis then we would go get some blood and measure a whole bunch of different things to see if we could identify what changes during that pain crisis.
0: But the cool thing about the, the, the measuring of the, of the blood and assessing them is that we came to them, right? We didn't ask them to come to the hospital in response to that pain, but it alerted a, a phlebotomist, which is someone who specializes in drawing blood. And I know the warriors are very familiar with these folks. A mobile phlebotomist would actually come to the home and take a blood sample of that patient in their home, so they didn't have to go through the trouble of coming to the hospital.
2: And so again, I'm super biased, but I think this was great study for a lot of reasons. But that's one of them. So I think, you know, we were capturing what was going on at home. It wasn't manipulated by people having to come to the hospital. Because of that, I I think we're able to answer questions that a lot of studies couldn't because they weren't doing it in the home. And another strength of our our study was It was longitudinal. So we were following the same patients over a long period of time. So some people will do a study to test one of these markers out and they'll say, I got 40 patients who aren't in a pain crisis and 40 patients who are in a pain crisis. And that's a good way to do it, but you lose something there. You don't know, you know, are those two sets of patients different? You also don't know, you know, is a patient who's low and becomes high different than a patient who's high and becomes low? So you, 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 you can't tell changes within a person. And so I think that was a huge advantage of our study was we were getting these baseline levels when people were not in pain. And then we were getting levels from the same people when they were in pain, wherever they were having pain at home, in the hospital. And so we were able to track that.
0: exactly. Yeah. And,
2: and some of the markers we looked at, um, one that, that uh, Dr. Z has become one of the world experts on, is um, actigraphy. So this is like a Fitbit or an iWatch or something that measures your sleep and your activity. And when you are able to do that, you, you can see changes as people develop pain. And we saw a lot of changes there. So we saw that patients became much less active when they had pain. Patients had interrupted sleep. And so those are things that we're studying now to see if we can use those as markers even before pain starts and intervene, or can we use them to see how medicines work? And as people take medicines and start becoming more active, we can say, Oh, look, that medicine's working well. So that was one of them. Another one that is, uh, near and dear to Dr. Hines's heart, is we looked at how sticky people's blood cells were in and out of pain episodes. I'll let uh, Dr. Hines tell you a little bit about what we saw there.
0: Yeah, so one of the things that we've known about for a long, long time, ever since the uh, late 70s, early 80s, from the studies of uh, uh, Robert Hebel and, and, and colleagues, is that the red blood cells in patients with sickle cell disease are just stickier than the red blood cells in people without sickle cell disease. And folks have studied that for a long, long time, but they didn't really understand how that related directly to the clinical problems that patients would have, namely pain. And through this research, we've actually identified a lot of targets that can uh, make red blood cells and other cells in the blood less sticky. And as a matter of fact, one of those medications that directly addresses stickiness has been approved by the FDA, a drug called Adacfeo that was uh, developed by, uh, or at least uh, you know studied and, and, and uh, FDA approved by Novartis. But a lot of these drugs that affect the red blood cells, at the end of the day, make those cells healthier. And we know that stickiness is by definition a pathologic or an abnormal property of red blood cells that can cause lots of problems. So this study gave us the opportunity to see what are the stickiness levels in red blood cells just when the patients are fine over time? Like we, we've never really established what a normal range for this is using a standardized clinical test for cell stickiness. And then what happens to this property once patients say that they're in pain? What's the relationship between a patient reported pain event and this particular property of their red blood cells?
2: In addition to that, we looked at how much the blood cells stick together. So we measured how many. Platelets were floating around stuck to monocytes or stuck to neutrophils, and how big those groups of cells were. And what we found there was that they stuck together more, and there were bigger clumps of them when people were having pain episodes. And we also looked at a whole bunch of normal lab values, like your blood counts and your LDH, to look at how much the blood was breaking down, as well as a bunch of uh, inflammatory markers. And we captured 114 pain episodes in 35 patients. The patients were on the study for a total of six months. So really quite a few.
1: That's a huge undertaking. Six months, 30 patients over six months, 100 plus pain episodes.
2: And and people were getting blood every three weeks at their house. And we had a great team of phlebotomists, really great group of patients on this study. I think the phlebotomist and the patients bonded and they set up these home visits and were able
1: to get the, the samples. Has that ever been done before in a sickle cell study, Dr. C?
2: Not on this scale or or with this yeah. many samples.
0: And um, I'll add one other, one other thing to this that makes this really cool. For a patient that never had any pain episodes, every three weeks, they would get their blood taken by this phlebotomist at home. For the patient that did report today, I'm having a pain episode. That mobile phlebotomist would be there within 24 hours to take the sample one. They would come back again 24 hours after that to get a sample two. And then they would get a resolution sample 48 hours after the patient stated that I'm no longer in pain. So we really captured the whole spectrum of biomarkers surrounding that pain episode.
2: I think the cool thing too is because we were doing this at people's homes and because people were reporting every day, we were capturing what was going on at home. So those warriors who take care of their pain at home, or people who are having pain episodes that maybe don't meet their threshold to have to come into the hospital, we captured that too. And that was actually the majority of the pain episodes. Right um, about of the pain episodes and and, uh, most of the days were treated at home with without any medical intervention. And we also captured how many days people were having pain. So we had 114 episodes, we had 346 pain days. So really a lot of pain days. And we captured on those days that actigraphy and we saw that people were much less active, their sleep was much worse. Of course, they had more pain They had a lot more fatigue. We really captured a lot of data there. And then we saw a lot of changes in these inflammatory markers. So we saw some that changed quite drastically during the pain episodes. We saw changes in the adhesion profiles that Dr. Hines looked at. We saw changes in those aggregates of platelets and white blood cells. And so I, I think that gives us some idea that there's a biological process going on that involves inflammation. It involves adhesion. It involves these blood cells sticking together that's leading to the pain episode and that that corresponds to what the patients
0: are telling us that I'm having pain today. It's kind of like our video of what's actually happening.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really neat. That's really, really, really cool. I'm still kind of blown away by the innovation of this phlebotomy model in bringing the clinical trial to the house of the patient. That is just, I mean, that's phenomenal that you guys were able to accomplish that.
2: It was a neat, I think, study design, and it took a whole lot of people. I mean, science is a team sport, and uh, we had a great team on this. Um, We had a great group of uh, phlebotomists. We had a great group of people who helped us put together the phone app. Uh, We had Functional Fluidics. We had Austin Children's Hospital, we had Dr. Z. I mean, we, we had a great team on this and there were a lot of moving pieces. I think, you know, one thing that was amazing is if a patient came in, got enrolled on the study, they could go through the whole rest of the study and never see the hospital, never come to clinic. It could all be done in the home with them reporting their clinical information on the, on the phone app and the blood being drawn in the home. And we, we did a lot of testing around that phone app too. We interviewed people about it and we had a computer see uh, if they said nice things about it or not nice things about it in a, in an objective way. We, you know, we tested how well that that performed, how easily the patients thought it could be used. And we learned a lot of things that we can maybe use to make that better for the future, too. So I think, you know, the, the take home message is that we were able to identify some important biomarkers, including actigraphy, that most pain happens at home. And, and I think this can move into something that we can use to test out new medications, to really try to intervene in pain before, before it happens and look for new targets for treatments in sickle cell disease.
1: Right. I completely agree. That's amazing, guys. Thank you so much for breaking down that study for us. And and I really hope that, you know, warriors recognize that uh, physicians recognize that pain is more than just, uh, you know, someone showing up in your ER asking for opioids. It's something that our patients deal with at home all the time, it really consumes their life. And and we just see the tip of the iceberg. Thanks again to Dr. Hines and Dr. Callahan for that exceptional work and sharing it with us. Dr. C, we're done with episode, I think now 11.
2: Yeah, 11's in the books. That was a good one. Dr. Kavanaugh, Dr. Hines, we had outstanding guests and I think great discussion about um, pain and the emergency room and. Ellipsis and uh, I, I loved that episode, Dr. Z.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dr. Hines, how was
0: your experience, man? If we invite you again, are you just gonna say no or are you gonna come back? And you know I'm not gonna say no. Like I said, any excuse I get to have to hang out with you guys, it's it's great to see how the, uh, the the magic is made. I've been following your podcast since episode one. It's so fun to hang out with you guys. You guys are not only smart people, but you're just just really, really good folks. I like spending time and, and learning from you guys. So great, great opportunity. Man,
1: it goes both ways.
0: And and warriors, yeah, we're so lucky to have you. For on.
1: sure, warriors, please make sure to follow Dr. Patrick Hines, M.D., Ph.D., on Twitter. And make sure you check out Functional Fluidics. We're going to have an entire episode dedicated to Patrick Hines coming soon, and we'll talk about his assay in, in, in a lot more detail and how that could be a benefit to warriors. So make sure you follow through on that and, and follow what Patrick Hines is doing. Who, by the way is a healthcare hero in Detroit for 2020. Yeah, congratulations. congratulations our magazine, man. healthcare
2: heroes. Thanks, guys. Cranes. Oh, Cranes Detroit healthcare heroes.
1: We are, uh, you're, you're our healthcare hero for sure, without the H. We're immensely proud of having you here with us, man, and on our team. And uh, just to have you, you know, a short walk away, a text away is, is huge for us. So, so thank you for that. All right, well... Warriors, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with someone who you think could learn about sickle cell disease um, or someone who has sickle cell disease. Make sure you follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and Dr. Callahan at
2: Imagineer.
1: Make sure you follow Dr. Hines at PatrickHines underscore MDPHD on Twitter. Follow at FunFlu to get to functional fluidics and see what they're up to because they are going to become a big deal in um, following sickle cell red blood cell health and uh, defining how we treat sickle cell patients. Till next time, Warriors. Thanks for checking in. Keep living well with Sickle Cell.
2: Bye, Dr. Z. Take care, guys. Bye.